Welcome to episode 36 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and this week, rather than having our usual host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center, with us, today we have as our guest, Alison Payevich in Winnipeg. Alison is with us today because she's the lead lawyer in the Manitoba court case on the lockdowns, which took place in the spring. And on October 21st, the judgment came down, and the ruling, or rulings, were not favorable to the plaintiffs, seven churches and three individuals. We lost. Manitoba's Chief Justice, Glenn Joyal, concluded that while the province did violate the fundamental freedoms of the plaintiffs, sections 2A, B, and C, they were justified in doing so. And he found the province did not violate section 7, legal rights, and section 15, equality rights. There is more, of course, and you can find the complete judgment in a 156-page PDF linked through the Justice Center press release on the subject at their website, jccf.ca. And I will, of course, provide a link in the show notes. All right, never fun to lose, but let's get at it. Allison, was there any evidence in this case that you believe the Chief Justice didn't analyze correctly? Well, yes, I would say that one of the biggest um, points and arguments that we had that we were most confident about when we were arguing in this case was our challenge to the public health order which restricted outdoor gatherings. And we were looking in the Manitoba's evidence for their scientific explanation as to why they were restricting outdoor gatherings. Did they have evidence of outbreaks at outdoor gatherings? Did they have evidence that uh, there is peer-reviewed science that shows that COVID spreads efficiently outdoors? Where was their evidence that uh, restricting outdoor gatherings to a maximum of five people was actually justified in the science? And when we got their evidence... The only mention of outdoor transmission was in Dr. Jason Kendrachuk's expert report. And it said something along the lines of the evidence uh, of outdoor transmission is elusive. And that was it. And there was another document uh, submitted within one of the province's affidavits, which talked about, I think it was called potential COVID-19 acquisition settings. And it was sort of a projected estimate of where in Manitoba society people would be catching COVID based on whatever information they relied on. And not one of those settings was an outdoor setting. So they had nothing, and I mean nothing, to justify on the basis of the science restricting gatherings outdoors. And in this judgment, while the the Chief Justice looked, uh, actually recited the fact that we were arguing this point, that there was no evidence, he actually didn't make a finding on the fact that there was no, or there was or there wasn't science to back up Manitoba's restriction on gathering sizes outdoors. He just lumped in indoor and outdoor gatherings together and said, 
I don't see anything in the applicant's arguments or the science they've presented that uh, would uh, lead me to believe that Manitoba's response wasn't justified. He never actually delineated the uh, specific orders in his decision. Like he never said, well, for the, the order restricting outdoor gatherings, I found that there was this evidence which justified their response. And for the indoor gatherings, there was this evidence that justified the, the restriction. No, he lumped in indoor and outdoor together. They're very different. We know from uh, the science is quite clear that there is no outdoor spread of COVID unless you're coughing up close in somebody's face. Um, but certainly they don't have any evidence. They never even provided even that evidence. They provided no evidence on outdoor transmission. So for the court to lump indoor and outdoor together as though they're the same thing, uh, we would respectfully argue that that, that is an error uh, because the public health orders were different. And, and one of our applicants was specifically arguing uh, that the public health order, which he, he actually got a, a ticket for breaching for uh, attending a protest, which was the size of it was too big, you know, that section was unconstitutional. So where's the science to back it up? It doesn't exist. And the court avoided that in the decision by lumping the two together. And we say that was a, respectfully, that was a mistake. Okay. Respectfully, then, is this grounds for appeal? Because I think that's the question everybody's ultimately wondering about. I know that uh, you're looking at the particulars and you were there on the ground making the arguments. But, you know, just backing up for a second, I, I know it's early days. You only just received the judgment. I don't necessarily expect a definitive answer. But are you thinking that the, that particular item is grounds for appeal? I would say so, but I can't uh, speak to uh, what my clients are going to decide. There, as you know, there's more than one applicant, and I need to meet with all of them to determine what they would like to do going forward. So I can't answer that definitively, but I certainly do see um, areas where I think there would be grounds for an appeal. Right, and then you'll present them to your clients, and then they make absolutely, a yeah. Right, okay. Just on the indoor outdoor thing, you had uh, was it seven churches or something like this involved in this case? Yes. Did did the indoor outdoor thing affect them at all? Because I know there were some drive-in churches across the country that were having problems in Saskatchewan. They had a uh, some difficulty there. Did they? I think they had that in Manitoba as well, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it, our our um, our church clients didn't protest the outdoor gathering order because the outdoor gathering order that we were dealing with was people standing outside gathering outdoors mm. in numbers greater than five or 10. What is, has been become known in Manitoba as church in cars, that order that uh, congregants couldn't even drive to churches and sit in their cars was that one was brought in in November of 2020 and then lifted in December of 2020. So that was very different. And, you know, we, we argued at the hearing that that was discriminatory uh, because people could go to Walmart with their families in a car, get out of the car, stand in line with other people 
and that was allowed. But it wasn't okay for the same number of people in a car to sit at a church service with the windows rolled up and the cars cl- the car door cl- closed. So, you know, we argued that that was discriminatory. But again, um, the court didn't deal with the church and cars argument and didn't reference it whatsoever in the decision. Oh, okay. I mean, I must confess I didn't read it all <clears throat> in preparation. I went as fast as I could. Um, and I was getting angry as I was reading it. So, well, one of the things that was mentioned in the press release that the Justice Center set out was the uh, the statement by the judge that uh, he believed that public health officials shouldn't be second-guessed. Was that your decision to highlight that remark? Did you find that extraordinary? Uh, you know, when I went back through the decision, I noticed that he was referencing a decision out of Newfoundland Uh, called Taylor. I'm not, I haven't read that decision recently, but uh, I don't believe in that case, any science was presented the way that we've presented expert opinion in our case. And so when the court in that case made the comment, public health officials should not be second guessed, which is what our judge in, in this case was referring to, he was citing that decision. I don't believe that that is the same thing because our judge uh, had, you know, experts on either side and our experts certainly challenging the science relied upon by the, the public health officials in Manitoba, whereas that judge did not have that information. And so, you know, he said, well, I'm not going to second guess the public health officials. There wasn't any contradictory science or, or questioning of the science in the same way. So, you know, uh. we've... We made the points that we made about second-guessing the science, uh, and, and it's unfortunate that this decision doesn't reveal, in my view, what is one of the most important parts of our case, which questioned the science, which was Dr. Joel Kettner's expert report, which was nearly 40 pages long, single-spaced. And this judgment does not reference Dr. Kettner's report in any meaningful way. Dr. Kettner opined on many of the most important issues. He sat in Dr. Brent Rusin's shoes for 13 years, and he had very meaningful um, arguments and conclusions and questions in his expert report about many of the elements of this case that are critical in our view, like his view on PCR testing. Yes. I remember you guys sent out a press release on that one quite early on as the case was ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in in the judgment, uh, the court referred to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya's view on PCR testing and Dr. Thomas Warren's view on PCR testing and Dr. Jared Bullard's view on PCR testing, uh, but didn't reference Dr. Kettner's opinion about what was being done with the PCR tests. And that, in our view, is is critically important because he, as a former chief public health officer, had an opinion about what is being done with the results of the PCR tests when it's inconclusive as to whether a positive PCR test means that someone is actually has infectious, contagious COVID at that time. And he had an opinion on that. And that is not mentioned whatsoever in this decision. And that's just one of the many parts of Dr. Kettner's report 
that has been completely ignored in this decision. Ah, let's see. Okay. I didn't actually realize that, but it, it does raise an interesting point because I just want to put in at this point, this decision came down the same day that the Justice Center had its George Jonas Freedom Award meeting, and you had introduced uh, one of the keynote speakers, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who was also an expert witness in this case. And so uh, what he said during his speech, I thought was quite relevant in the sense that he said, I did not create anything new when I co-created the Great Barrington Declaration. This was all based on things that had been done before. And so when I was looking at this statement, you know, we shouldn't second guess public health officials. I was thinking, well, we, but we do have something to second guess them against, and that's the past, what was done before. And I guess that speaks very much to your point there, that Dr. Kettner was a public health official. I guess they can be second guessed after they retire, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And, and Dr. Kettner, I, I ought to note, in his affidavit and his expert report, he outlined that what was the prevailing um, sort of procedure and policy response to SARS, which was occurring at, during his tenure as chief public health officer, was to follow what he said was basically a focused protection approach. And he didn't call it that at the time, the way that Dr. Bhattacharya has now coined the phrase, but that's exactly the way that he handled things. And that was the, the way that things were done during his tenure was to protect those who are most vulnerable. And so that was not mentioned whatsoever in the judgment either, that Dr. Kettner was supportive of this focused protection approach, and that that is how he handled, uh, you know, dealing with the SARS pandemic during his time as chief public health officer. And another aspect of Dr. Kettner's affidavit, which was, again, ignored in this decision, which I felt was very important. He was not cross-examined on this point either, so it's in evidence, without question, without challenge. And he stated that overburdening of the hospital system, the overcrowding, the full hospitals, being described in Manitoba's materials is not different than what he recalls during his seeing every year during his 13 years as chief public health officer. And he was not challenged on that statement. Right, yeah. I should mention that uh, at the end of that uh, meeting, the uh, Justice Center meeting, there was a video that played. And in there, there was a former public emergency officer in there. And he was talking about uh, – uh, here it is. This is from the Justice Center video, Canada's Freedom Fighters, Canadians Resisting Unconstitutional Lockdowns. And the speaker in this clip is Lieutenant Colonel David Redmond, retired, who is a former head of emergency management, Alberta. And he actually drafted the province's pandemic influenza plan for 2005. I first knew that 
the lockdown response was wrong immediately. Having been part of the planning process back in 2005 and having read the 2014 Alberta plan, I knew that the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, was not the correct path to take for this virus. Non-pharmaceutical interventions are known not to have significant effect on the spread of a viral disease like COVID, but they come with severe collateral damages. And so by using lockdowns, i.e. a collection of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, I knew we were following the wrong path. The primary effects of lockdowns in collateral damages are well known and well documented. In fact, in the 2019, published in September 2019, the World Health Organization's definitive document, which was simply an update of their previous documents, stated that the type of collateral impacts one could expect would be mental health, societal health, destruction of education of children, severe impact on individuals who had other severe diseases, and massive impact on your economy. Every one of those fives has been borne out in Canada in terrible, terrible manners. But as well, one of the things that's known in the use of NPIs is to enforce them normally causes severe damage to democracies. It seems like, you know, we, we have this science without a past you know we have all, we had all these plans before and now we have this science without a past or scientific marxism or whatever it is and you know all of a sudden this whole situation is new and unprecedented and uh is that the way it seemed in the hearing you know that uh, just you know we're doing this because we're doing this because this is something new yeah i mean sort of the 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 questioning to dr Bhattacharya whether it was from the opposing counsel or the, the chief justice, sort of insinuated that his approach was it went against the mainstream and its alternative view. And, you know, there are risks with doing things that way. And it was sort of looked at as like, whoa, you're, you're suggesting something that is, as you say, almost like it was new. But in reality, before COVID, that's how things were done. And so it's like the tables have been completely turned upside down. And what is strange and um, what some might seem as uh, unconventional has now become the norm. And anything outside of that, that is used, used to be normal, is now alternative and fringe and dangerous. So it's really struck me, and even in reading the decision where the court talks about the focused protection approach as though it's something that, you know, is so different, ought not to be even entertained because of the risks that it poses. But that's exactly what public health was doing years prior. So you're absolutely right on that point. Well, okay, and I may trademark scientific Marxism. I don't know yet. I don't, maybe that's already been coined and means something else. I'm not sure. But at any rate, okay, so there was also, I guess, well, there were lots of public health officials up there. I mean, it's this whole idea of not questioning their judgment, I guess you, you say it was very particular, but it seemed to sort of override everything that I was able to read in the, in the uh, judgment so far. I mean, there were particular things he found 
that there were certain rights that were violated, but they were justified, and then there were certain rights that weren't violated at all. And I think the religion one, or no, it was the autonomy one, Section 7, uh, bodily autonomy, that wasn't, uh, he, he dismissed that completely. Maybe you could just explain how he got away. Yeah, that was a Section 7 uh, claim that, that we made on behalf of our clients. And that had to do with the psychological harms that came from being confined to your home, not being able to, you know, have people in or go to anyone else's house. And uh, that, 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 and our, our clients testified in their affidavits that that kind of isolation caused them significant psychological distress, also not being able to uh, attend church services had the same kind of psychological impact on them. And it was certainly not trivial. And to them, it was very real. And, you know, we've seen that after the first year of this COVID pandemic, you've seen a lot of reports about mental health crises going on and overdoses, opioid addiction, alcoholism increasing, violence increasing, you know, those statistics came through loud and clear during the hearing. Manitoba gave us a report on increasing, you know, teenagers cutting themselves, young people cutting themselves. Uh, so certainly being forced to be isolated in our argument at home is something that is, is psychologically damaging. And it, and if you don't follow that, if you have people into your house against public health orders, you can be given a ticket. And of course, this is what happened to uh, one of our clients. He got a ticket for, for being outside with a group uh, in excess of, of the outdoor capacity and so, uh, you know, the, the court didn't agree with that and found, well, the psychological harm was not great enough uh, to warrant that kind of a infringement of that right. But the analysis, I guess the court accepted Manitoba's argument that, well, people could still go outside and, and socialize and gather with other people. And my argument back to that is, well, my argument was, in the middle of the winter time, see these, there was the order in December around mm. Christmas time that you could not have anyone at your house outside of your family. And, uh, the, the judgment actually looking at it right now, the judgment at paragraph 326, uh, says these gatherings do not, these, these, um, orders do not prevent gathering altogether. They actually did in December where, you know, I couldn't even see my own family at Christmas time. So I know that, uh, that from looking at the order, you weren't allowed to have anyone come to your house. And what are we supposed to do? What are the clients supposed to do? Stand outside on the street and socialize with four other people when it's snowing and minus 30 degrees outside in Winnipeg and Manitoba. So, oh, I you see. Know, that, so it, it seemed like they were splitting hairs there in that one then. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, it's really not a solution to say, well, for your own mental health, you can socialize with four other people uh, standing on the street when it's minus 30 in the wintertime. So really, I don't see that as a solution. Okay. And that's, uh, I guess, ultimately what we were hoping for here. I, the solution right now is that 
the government's right about everything. <laughs> I was so depressed when I read this thing, or the little yeah. bit that I did read. Well, so, that's yeah. the thing. It's it's you know I know we're in a you know we're in a pandemic, and there's very similar public health responses across the country and in some parts of the world, and that's sort of the part of the from my reading of the judgment is that the court referenced the fact that while this is being done, the same thing's being done across Canada, other parts of the world, uh, you know, therefore, is it really not justified when our, our public health team in Manitoba is just following what everyone else is doing? And does that make it right, though? Yeah, I know. You I know? mean, I can. Th that's that's the thing. Yeah, I can sympathize with them in a certain way. Why are we being singled out here in this? You know, and and as I read the evidence in that case and the Alberta case, I found that a lot of similarities, and I came to the personal conclusion that this is all being run out of Ottawa because there is so much similarity there. Um, I don't know whether you had any similar observations. I mean, you must have had some sympathy for the fact that you put these people on the hot seat and, uh, you know, why Manitoba? But again, does it make it right? And I think that's what we were hoping to to find. Uh, apparently, it does. Yeah, and I mean, one of the, the things that, again, is just reviewing the decision that's really striking to me is a an unwillingness to really engage with what uh, we feel is the most important part of the science and the evidence here in this case. It's sort of the elephant in the room. And it's the argument that we made in the oral hearing was that when you have uh, what I referred to as a, a house that the public is going to you know, might decide to buy. They're looking at this shiny house from the outside. They got the public health orders at the top of that house. And you want to have the, the public's confidence that this is the kind of house that they want to buy. It looks good from the outside. It looks strong. It looks solid. And the public health orders are at the top. What's at the bottom of the house? How did we get from, you know, what's going on in society to be able to have those public health orders being made, which were restricting freedoms. And what's at the bottom of the house better be solid. It better be verifiable and strong scientific, medical, empirical, evidentiary basis to have a solid, strong house that's not going to collapse. And when you open the door to the house and you look at how did we get from there to the public health orders, you have to look at the cases. It's the cases that drive the public health orders because it's the cases and the case counts which the public health team in their own evidence admitted is the, the, one of the strongest factors that comes into the decision to have these circuit break lockdowns and, and further public health orders restricting gatherings. So, well, how do you diagnose a case then? I'm sure that your your method of, of diagnosing COVID-19 must be rock solid. Otherwise, this house would be full of holes on the bottom. And that's exactly what came out at the hearing. And, you know, it was it was the evidence of Dr. J. Bhattacharya, which talked about uh, cycle thresholds of these PCR tests. It's very complicated, technical, scientific information. And in the judgment, the Chief Justice actually 
sets out Dr. Bhattacharya's evidence, which was that in Manitoba, uh, Manitoba cycles the PCR test up to 40. And Manitoba's witness, Dr. Jared Bullard of the Cadham Labs here in Winnipeg, he admitted that. And he said that some of uh, at least one, I believe at least one device, if not two, one for sure, is cycled to 45 cycles. What does that mean? That's how many times the machine uh, is spun in order to find a, a sample that is identifiable of SARS-CoV-2. And it's not like you spin it once, you spin it twice, and it goes up by one. It's every time it's spun, it's an exponential increase. So it's like taking a magnifying glass and, and magnifying uh, your your sample to such a degree that you're now you're you know you have to magnify it so many times to be able to see something. Well, that's how many times do they have to cycle this sample to be able to um, to be able to get uh, the requisite growth of the virus to be able to say this is positive. Well, what does it mean? Well, if they have to cycle it 40 times or higher, it's almost a 100% chance that what they found is dead. And so they might have found, they found something, they found a remnant of SARS, but it's dead. And if the positive result was from a cycle of 40, then in our view, that should be considered a case because that's a dead virus. So it has no chance of infecting anybody. And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a scale. And Dr. Bullard has published two peer-reviewed papers on PCR tests and his own finding of cell growth correlated with, with uh, uh, cycle thresholds and how these samples will grow in a, in a Petri dish correlated with the cycle thresholds. And he's found that the samples don't grow as well or, or very much at all uh, once you get above 25 cycles. It's an inverse relationship. So the higher the cycles, the lesser the chance that what is found is actually viable, alive, and can infect someone else. So we got information from Manitoba. They provided it to us in an affidavit as to, well, what percentage of their um, samples that came out of the, the CADM lab were at what cycle threshold, were spun at what cycle threshold. And, you know, they said 7% of the samples bet were between 36 and 40 so in our view, that's a negative, um, we would say that's most likely not contagious. And then 18% was, I believe, 30 to 36. And then another 18% was 25 to 30. So the closer you get to 25, the higher the chance that what is found is going to be viable virus. But the closer you get to 40, the less chance that it's viable virus. And Anthony, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci actually stated in a, in a video clip, I've seen it, that anything that the cycle threshold should never be higher than 35 because anything above 35, in his professional opinion, is dead virus. So when you're talking about 
taking a definition of, of a case and, and a positive result, taking that information and saying, doesn't matter what cycle threshold we used, as long as the result of the PCR test is positive, Dr. Rusin takes that information and he tells the public and he tells his team that's a case. And he uses that number, those the, the accumulation of cases, to make a decision as to what kind of restrictions we need. And so he admitted in, in cross-exam that he doesn't actually know anything other than information about whether this was a positive or negative. There's no clinical assessment of these patients before he takes that information about whether this was positive and calls it a case. He doesn't know whether those patients have symptoms. He doesn't know whether they've been exposed to anyone else with COVID. He doesn't know anything other than the test was positive. And the World Health Organization actually put out two warnings about PCR testing and cycle thresholds in December and January, December of 2020 and January of 2021. And Manitoba did not reference those warnings in its evidence. We had to, we had to bring it out. Dr. Bhattacharya referenced it and Dr. Warren referenced it as well in that the cycle threshold is very important and there's an inverse relationship between the number of cycles and the viability of the sample in terms of growing virus. And also that a PCR test alone should not be used to make a diagnosis, that a clinical uh, examination ought to accompany it. And Dr. Jared Bullard, in his peer-reviewed paper from May of 2020, said the same thing. He said, uh, in, in studying the fact that you know, there is this relationship between cycle threshold and the viability of, of the sample and, and the virus, that these PCR test results should not be used in isolation. There needs to be a clinical examination, which is not being done. That came out at the hearing. It's not being done. These positive tests, which could be false positives, thing is nobody knows if they're false positives or not, and, you know, they, they could do a, an examination of each person, see if they're symptomatic. That would give a better idea. Or you could lower the cycle threshold to a, a level where you're more confident that what you're getting is an actual contagious person. But they're not doing that. They're not asking. Dr. Rosen admitted in cross-exam that he could ask for the cycle thresholds if he wanted to, but he's not. They're asking in, in Florida... They have to report, the lab has to report the cycle thresholds in Florida. They're not doing that in Manitoba. And uh, so, you know, what you have here is a diagnosis of what? You you can't say, they can't say, and, and the court actually, the Chief Justice actually outlined in the first part of his decision these facts that came out that that PCR test result does not prove that someone is infectious. He reiterated what was found as well in that Dr. Bullard admitted it, that a positive PCR test result could mean that that person had COVID up to 100 days in the past. And they haven't been contagious for up to 100 days. Not saying that happens all the time, 
but it's possible. It's also possible, Dr. Bullard admitted it and Dr. Thomas Warren stated this as well on cross-exam, that it's possible that someone might have SARS detectable in their nose, but it didn't actually infect them at all. So it never, so so the PCR test could pick up SARS in the nose, but the person was never contagious. Or so, never and, infected and the, or, or never contagious? They, they were never infected with it. Okay. It was just sitting there. Mm-hmm. So that's possible as well. And the distinction that most people don't understand is, and this is not contested by Manitoba, uh, Dr. Bullard admitted it on cross-exam. Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya and Dr. Warren explained this very clearly in their reports and in the cross-exam. So a positive test result, not only you have to worry about cycle thresholds, how high was the cycle, but also it means that SARS, the virus, is detectable in the nose. It does not mean the person has COVID, the disease. So, so even if there is like a positive test at 28 cycles or something like that from the PCR test, which is the nose swab, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a case, is what you're saying, is it? Well, as per Manitoba's definition, it is. But Okay, but a of, real case. Right? Yeah. Okay. Like a case meaning, you, you think of a case, I think people think that a case means somebody's walking around with contagious COVID right now. If I have a positive test result, I better go home and I better hide for two weeks because I don't want to infect anybody. I think that's what people think because they've been told to isolate for two weeks with a positive test result and other contacts have to isolate. It just becomes this, this, you know, never ending process of isolating contacts and contact tracing. And, you know, their argument is, well, we have to be sure, you know, we have to make sure that, that, you know, on the chance that that person is infectious, we have to, you know, isolate everybody just to be safe. But when you're talking about balancing rights, and this is what Dr. Kettner really harped on in his report that was completely ignored in this decision, that when you're talking about uh, curtailing rights to such a degree, that you, you, you better be more sure than this, that a case is actually somebody who's actually contagious. And when it comes to the province's onus, the onus was on the province to prove, to show with compelling evidence that their response here, making these public health orders at the top of this house, as I've said, uh, was justified. When you look at the bottom of the house to the diagnosis of the cases, which leads you to the top of the house, as I said, that the how that the bottom is full of holes because is that person really contagious, or were they contagious ninety days ago, or did they even get were they even contagious at all? And we've never said our argument has never been that a positive test result can't be someone who has COVID. Of course not. The problem is we don't know how many people, based on these flawed, seriously flawed tests, actually have or had contagious COVID. And therefore, can we really say that we should be making these restrictive, devastating, um, you know, public health orders, devastating mentally to so many people based on unknowns? This is not like a pregnancy test where you're positive or you're negative based on a blood test that has like a 90 something percent chance of being correct. 
This is a swab in the nose that detects the presence of a virus but does not diagnose a disease. And I have to say, one of the most important parts of the evidence, again, that was not referenced in this decision whatsoever, comes from the manuals for the PCR devices. We were provided those by Manitoba. We asked to see them and they very grateful they provided them to us because we were able to read the manufacturer's instructions. And in at least three of those devices, the instructions clearly said this PCR, the the result ought not to be used to make a diagnosis. And that was, that was not mentioned at all in this decision. So the PCR machine itself, the manufacturers who make those machines say, do not use this to make a diagnosis. It must be in this, this falls into line with what WHO said as well. The diagnosis ought to be made in conjunction with the clinical examination of the person. And that's not being done. And nowhere in this decision does the chief justice actually discuss that and either say, the applicants argued this, this is the evidence, uh, you know, Dr. Bullard admitted this, and I find that it doesn't matter what the cycle thresholds are, or it doesn't matter uh, that the insert says this because I've decided or because of, the, you know, he doesn't go into an analysis. He basically states what the evidence was, and then simply says, I don't find the applicant's presentation of the science compelling. Even when you looked at the manufacturer's manual and said, um, oh, it says right here, by the way, you're not supposed to use it this way. Right. So it's basically a sort of blanket conclusions of, I'm, you know, there's been nothing in the applicant's arguments or in the science they presented that I can see that would lead me to the conclusion that Manitoba's response doesn't meet the section one test from the charter, which is the, is this reasonable and unjustified? And, you know, we're, we were looking for that analysis. Mm-hmm. And if his, if his analysis was there and still he found that that, that didn't matter, you know, that would be a different, a different uh, argument, but there was no analysis there. There was a, a, you know, and our experts actually agreed on the science of the PCR test. Everybody was in agreement. Hmm. The test can show that you were infectious 100 days ago. All parties agreed to that. The test can show that, um, or the, the, the science shows that there's an inverse relationship between the cycle threshold and someone's infectiousness. Everybody agreed on that. There was no disagreement there. So it's just, what do you do with that information? And there was no analysis on that point. And that is, we've always said, the most important part of this whole case in terms of the section one analysis is the diagnosis of COVID-19. Because it's diagnosis of COVID-19 that leads to those restrictions and the public health orders which were challenging. And if that diagnosis and our argument is flawed, not solid, uncertain, we don't even know how many people actually have contagious COVID or had it or were even infected with it, then how can you make these public health orders with these restrictions which are causing so much devastation? And so that the fact that that analysis is absent is deeply troubling to us. Deeply troubling. I to me, it sounds like a giant opening because now if you 
can find a way to move this on in an appeal, will you get to replay that? That's what I'm wondering. You know, if as I was listening to you, I was thinking, wow, wouldn't this be great to rehash this in another place, maybe another court? Is that possible? What would you have to do technically to to do that? Um, well, well, you know, you you file a, a notice of appeal and you set out your grounds, your proposed grounds of appeal, and you have to, you know, would I think would uh, it be with grounds that they didn't deal with this question? Is that grounds? Well, I mean, it's I mean, that, I, you know you speculating, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's that. Um, was there an error in law? Was there an error of mixed fact and law? Was there an error um, on the facts? And, you know, you, you try to make the argument that, well, certain facts were omitted, ignored, or based on the evidence presented, the factual finding was incorrect. And, you know, I'm I just looking at the judgment at paragraph 329, where the Chief Justice states, the evidence uh, supports the assertion that positive PCR cases of COVID-19 are real. Well, it's more nuanced than that. Yes, mm-hmm. some positive PCR cases, po- some positive test results do mean that someone has COVID-19 sometimes, but not all the time. And we don't know how much of the time. And, and then, you know, deaths from COVID-19 are real. Well, again... Sure, that happens sometimes, or we've never argued that it doesn't happen. The issue is how many of those deaths were from COVID-19 and how many were because someone who was sick with something else had a positive PCR test. And that was another part of the evidence that came out. Dr. Kettner highlighted it in his expert report. It was ignored in the decision. And Dr. Blanchard, who the province... Uh, used to try to refute Dr. Kettner's expert evidence, even agreed with Dr. Kettner on this point. And it's very important. Every deceased person that comes through, uh, that's examined by the chief medical health officer has, uh, sorry, the, the chief, um, coroner, uh, medical, no. medical, yeah, the coroner, that every, every person where the death was not obvious, like a like a you know car accident or blunt force trauma to the you know gunshot wound to the head kind of thing every person where the, where the cause of death is unknown or, or undetermined is given a PCR test and if that PCR test is positive that is recorded as a covid death so you know you could have somebody at home who commits suicide brought in and given a PCR test, but no one was with the person at the time. So it's unclear how, how that person actually died. And if it's a positive PCR, PCR test, then, it, then it's a COVID death. And Dr. Kettner in his report, and Dr. Blanchard agreed that, you know, this, this could inflate the death count. And this has never been done before. Prior to COVID, when Dr. Kettner was the chief medical health officer, you know, he said never did they ever swab deceased individuals noses for influenza or some other disease to see if that actually caused someone's death this is something new and so you know we we don't have we actually asked the province to provide us with 
um, the death death reports for all of the 800, approximately 800 people An that audit. they had. Wow, you asked for yeah, this. Did you get we them? We did. No, we didn't. We Could asked you ask for that. Them again, if you got into an appeal situation? No, oh. no, we can't. Uh, I mean, we we brought this we brought this uh, this by application, not a statement of claim. Oh, okay. We may have been able to get that information if we had uh, brought this by a like a a big trial kind of process, but that would have taken a couple of years, right. and we wanted we wanted a decision on this quickly. No, I so, understood. You know, we we, but common sense. If you're swabbing every deceased person for a condition where the test itself is faulty and might detect something that someone had a hundred up to a hundred days ago, you know the person could have died from whatever at home, a heart attack, who knows uh, some other you know issue, and it's a covid death in the in the morgue right. so that aspect of that was ignored in this in this decision so you know when when the court says deaths from covid are real the evidence supports those assertions sure deaths from covid are real but it's also true that you don't know how many of those covid deaths were actual deaths caused by covid and uh, dr Bhattacharya explained to the court under cross-exam that the death counts are inflated also because of the way that the WHO has reclassified, has advised doctors to, to change the way that deaths are, are classified such that if a person with, say you're 85 years old, 90 years old, and you have um, liver cancer, and you've been given a couple months to live, uh, and you you get COVID and then you get pneumonia, you know, you were stage four cancer that goes down now as a COVID death. Whereas before, as Dr. Kettner explained in his report, if you had stage four liver cancer, a couple months to live, but you died of pneumonia from influenza, the cause of death would not be influenza or pneumonia. The cause of death would be cancer and the secondary cause of death would be pneumonia. But now it's been flipped. WHO has advised physicians to change the way that they classify deaths. And, and Dr. Bhattacharya testified very effectively on that point. He doesn't understand why WHO made that change. But the fact that they did means that as comparison to influenza in the past, COVID death numbers will be higher. And so when we filed the application, you know, we made the claim that um, that the COVID death numbers are inflated. And as we explained in court, we weren't trying to say that there was some person behind the scenes manipulating the numbers in a computer system to increase the deaths. It's the actual way that uh, people are swabbed when they're deceased and the way that a death is recorded. Do you die with COVID or do you die from COVID? And because of all the unknowns there, because of the new classification system and the highly unreliable PCR tests, it's very difficult to determine how a person died. And so that's, we would never say that people don't die of COVID-19 of course, people die of COVID-19, especially the elderly. But 
the province ought to be able to come to the table and say, well, we are confident because we have a reliable way of testing to determine that people are actually contagious right now with COVID-19 and they couldn't do it. And they also refused to provide us with the results, uh, the, 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 the cycle thresholds from the labs at the hospitals and at Dynacare Lab. They only provided us with the information from CADM Lab, and they admitted that every person who walks through the door, Dr. Bullard testified, every person who walks through the door at a hospital and comes in for a surgery under general anesthetic is, whether it's surgery is for something completely unrelated to COVID, like a transplant, is actually swabbed for COVID-19. And if that's a positive, then that goes down as a positive. And he admitted that they use a cycle threshold of 45. 45, and as we know, that's just incredible. Anything yeah. above 40 is a false positive. And, you know, we asked them, can you show us, you know, what's the data for how many of those people from the hospitals that are being swabbed, what's what, what percentage and, you know, what were the cycle thresholds for each person within this time period? And uh, they, they said they didn't have access to that information. So uh, the thing is, is it felt like in this hearing, the onus was on the applicants to prove that the province's information was wrong, not that the province had the onus to prove that what they were saying was correct. And in a charter case, the onus is on the province to put forth compelling evidence of, uh, you know, in, in this case, the, the scientific data that supports their public health response. It's not our job to say that can't be true because, as, as the starting point, they have to come in and we would expect them to come in saying, we've got a solid test that makes the proper diagnosis. And, you know, all these 800 people who died of COVID, they actually were <laughs> highly confident that they had an infectious COVID which caused their deaths. And based on the evidence that came out, and which both sides of experts would agree with, they can't make that determination. So when you're looking at those public health orders based on the faulty cases and the full hospitals, which Dr. Kettner said, as described, was not unusual as compared to what he'd seen in his 13 years as chief public health officer. Who's in the hospital? What do they actually have? Who's in the ICU? What do they actually have? Some of them, I'm sure, had COVID. Some of them died of COVID. I'm not, we would never argue otherwise. But it's an unknown. And when you're talking about an unknown and making a decision to curtail charter rights and freedoms, uh, the biggest curtailment of rights and freedoms in Canadian history, in our view, they fell horribly short on that evidence. And the Chief Justice did a, a, a great job outlining what the evidence was, but avoided a lot of these, in our view, critical analyses in dealing with the most important parts of the evidence, which was what does he do with those PCR tests and results that are actually not actual diagnoses of COVID-19? They're at the bottom and how of it does, all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, that's seriously lacking. Um, 
the fact that Dr. Kettner's evidence was ignored, 40-page expert report was ignored. You know, those are, it's really unfortunate that the public hasn't had a chance to and won't by reading this decision know some of the, the very important parts of Dr. Kettner's views. And he, you know, he sat in in that chair for 13 years and he had a lot of important things to say. And it's arguable whether, you know, they would say, well, his, his opinions weren't correct, but there was no analysis of that opinion in this decision. And it was just ignored. Right. So that's really unfortunate. Well, that's why we hope for a replay here. I mean, I know you guys still have to decide that, but boy, I'd love to see this go be replayed before another court. If it did go to appeal, like I know this judge was the was he the Supreme Court of Manitoba or something like this. He was the top. Uh, he's the Chief Justice, Chief Justice of the yeah. Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench. So yeah. he's the head of the the Queen's Bench. Okay. Yeah, and above him, of course, is the Court of Appeal. And that's where this would go to if. A decision yes. to appeal. Okay. All right. Yes. And is that a single judge or does that go before like a three panel judge? Or? It's a panel of three okay. typically, yes. All right. Yeah. And how about timeline? Any anticipation of when you could see this? Well, we have, here? yeah, we have uh, 30 days okay. to file a notice of appeal. Okay. So as I've said, you know, we're going to meet with our clients uh, in due course and have a discussion and decide what we're going to do. I, I would like to go forward but it's not up to me. Right. So. Do they all have to go forward or can one guy say, okay, that's it, go for it. And then you can appeal or does it have to be a consensus or uh, Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we have to decide that they, they all didn't have the same, the same legal arguments. So, you know, if, um, if our, one of our clients was arguing that the prohibition on, uh, or a restriction on his outdoor ability to gather outdoors violated his right to assemble, but he had nothing to do with the religious okay. uh, orders based on religion. So if it was just him, then the arguments based on you know religious freedoms would fall. So it just depends uh, on who wants to keep going, uh, which charter arguments we could continue with. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see it all go ahead as I think that these issues are so important and I think it's worthy of going all the way to the Supreme Court because, you know, as I've said, these charter infringements are historic and, uh, you know, we'd like, we'd like, we'd like the Supreme Court to weigh in on whether charter rights and freedoms can be curtailed to such an extent even during a pandemic, and uh, as as I, you know, filed other cases from other jurisdictions like the United States, Germany, and Scotland have actually found in favor of similar applicants, religious applicants. And uh, in the case of Germany, one judge in in Weimar, Germany, had a scathing, scathing uh, decision against the government on behalf of people who wanted to gather, and you know, basically did this amazing analysis of all the science WHO and all the, the peer reviewed studies, similar ones that we provided. Another judge in Germany uh, also did a big analysis on mask wearing for kids, but analyzed a lot of the same arguments uh, that, that we had. And the PCR test was thrown out in a Portuguese court of appeal, threw it out an Austrian court, threw it out, can't make a diagnosis of COVID-19 based on the PCR test. And this German court also threw it out. 
And here, uh, you know, the Chief Justice, he, other than to say he doesn't find anything uh, in the science that would that would uh, lead him to the conclusion that the response wasn't justifiable. He didn't do an analysis on the most important part of the PCR test in that it can't diagnose COVID-19. They're just, it was absent, as I've said. And that was with uh, those, you know, we filed that argument with the other cases where the PCR test was thrown out right. and those judgments were not cited. Uh, that's what so, I was going to ask. Know, Does that become part of your evidence when those things, I, I guess it already did, and it was just not. Well, it was referenced. cases that we asked him to review. And, mm. you know, to be fair, a Canadian court is not bound sure. by decisions in other jurisdictions. However, it's our view that with this COVID pandemic, everything is so new and there is no precedent for this. And the scientific issues, it's important to see what other courts across the, the globe are saying about these testing methods and about the methods of transmission and about the constitutionality of these lockdowns, which are not unique to Canada. They're, you know, been imposed in many, many countries around the world. So we thought it was really important for the court to see that in Scotland, for example, which has a very similar legal test for justifying constitutional infringements as Canada actually found in favor of churches and uh, in a very, very similar kind of fact situation that, that we had. And same thing in the United States, U.S. Supreme Court uh, shot down uh, Governor Newsom five times in California and found in favor of churches in New York. Uh, I believe there was a case with ultra-Orthodox Jews and, and their their religious uh, freedoms were being curtailed and they were successful. So, you know, in, in our view, it was, it was proper to show the court what other judges have been, how they have worked through this similar evidence and, and similar curtailments of constitutional rights and freedoms. Right. And none of those, not, not even any of the U.S. decisions, nothing was referenced in this decision. And that is not an error. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in our view, those cases ought to have been persuasive, but I can't call it an error. Well, we close the border. Maybe we close the border to science as well. So that's my little sarcastic <laughs> remark. Okay, that brings us to the end of episode 36 of Justice with John Carpe. Alison Payevich, thank you so much for all your hard work on this file and for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. 